Peace Women Across the Globe. A podcast about women's contribution to peace all over the world. So, in Burundi, the current situation is the following. Politically, we are at the brink of a general renewal of our institutions, from the bottom to the top. Furthermore, we still have a huge number of refugees who have fled our country, and we also have a number of internally displaced persons. At the same time, we see a new flux of migrants coming in from Tanzania, also in huge numbers. As far as general security is concerned, the situation is okay, even though there are some shootings here and there. Most probably, they have to do with settling scores and conflicts about land. Some members of the opposing party might still feel threatened, and yes, sexual violence is still prevalent across the country. United Nations says security forces in the East African nation of Burundi have been gang-raping women during searches of homes. Burundi has a history of ethnic conflict. A civil war which ended 10 years ago pitted the country's Tutsi minority against rebel groups from its Hutu majority. Rupert Colville is from the UN's Human Rights Agency. The suggestion that an ethnic dimension is now starting to emerge is reinforced by one of the sexually abused women who said that her abuser told her she was paying the price for being a Tutsi. Another witness claimed that Tutsis were systematically killed while Hutus were spared. And in the Murambia uh, neighborhood of Bujumbura... On the economic side, I must say the situation is very tense. Due to the international boycott, there is no foreign money coming in. And it is very difficult to find imported goods, especially urgently needed medicines. In violation of a peace deal that helped end the civil war, Western powers fear the unrest could descend into a renewed ethnic conflict spilling over into neighboring countries. On top of that, we are in the midst of a general election, and this in the COVID-19 lockdown. So we are really asking ourselves, how will this all work out? Federation of Human Rights says the politically motivated violence has transformed into the familiar ethnic conflict between the Hutus and Tutsis. The Hutu-dominated government is accused of stirring up historic tensions by identifying the opposition as only Tutsis and targeting them. As the violence escalates, the international community is concerned that Burundians are on their own. The president kicked out representatives from the African Union and the UN 
All this, I must say, has repercussions, especially on us women who are in charge of food production. As you know, Burundi is a country of agriculture, so it is the women who cultivate the land. But a woman doesn't make a profit from her work. Her husband takes it all and, moreover, women are excluded from heritage. And if you look at refugee camps, we also see that women take care of the children. They are the ones who struggle to get food. And let's not forget that it's the women who go out to the bush every day to collect firewood, to fetch water, and it is there where they are exposed to all sorts of danger. Personally, I have lived through all the wars in and around Burundi. In 1972, I was still a young girl. I saw with my own eyes all the atrocities that happened. It is then that I learned that you were not allowed to cry. You were not allowed to despair. Even if they killed your father, your brother, no, you even had to applaud. I witnessed the atrocities in 1988. I saw what happened in 1991, in 1993, in the genocide. It was a disaster. It was then that I had to flee, to leave my country and go abroad. All I could take with me were my children, nothing else. I left everything else behind. When I arrived at the refugee camp, I had to feed my children. I had to find a school for them. So you can imagine the difficulties I faced. With all that, I'm not alone. All the women in Burundi have experienced this, in one way or another. Then, later, Kabila came to power in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and we in our refugee camp were scattered. I lost five of my children somewhere on the road. Even today, I have only three of my children with me, although I gave birth to eight. The others are still somewhere outside of the country. So all that I saw during those years has upset me. All that I saw when crossing borders has upset me. And I also remember very well what happened when I came back. You know, I live in a heavily populated and poor neighborhood in the north of the capital. Its name is Kinama. One day, our neighborhood was attacked by rebels of the FNL faction. That was in 2001. The government had some difficulties in repelling them. The rebels were there for more than two weeks. And when we came back from the camp, this is the situation we encountered. There were the rebels, and there was the military. And we had a lot of problems with both of them. In the evening, it was quite common that a member of either one or the other faction would enter a house. 
grab a woman and rape her in the front of her husband and her children. That was common at the time. And because all this was a big taboo, the victims didn't say a word. However, there was this feeling of anger and despair. One day, a woman in the neighborhood was raped. She was an old woman, and the perpetrator was a member of the Burundian military. At that moment, I started to work on the issue for real. I picked up the phone and called the journalist who worked for Voice of America. I said, Janine, something has happened, come over here. In the meantime, I took the old woman to the hospital. There, Janine interviewed her and she told her everything, everything. That was a crucial moment. The interview was broadcast on the radio and immediately the military came to our place, wishing to talk to the old woman. The commander questioned her in order to know what happened and she, again, spoke out openly. It was like this, this is what happened, etc. That really was the beginning of our work for denouncing rape, sexual crimes and more. From one day to the next, a huge number of women came to see me. I don't know how they got my address, but they started to talk and began telling me about what they had experienced. I did everything to help them. I took them to the hospital. In the meantime, we experienced another thing. We were accused of being insurgents, of being women who raised their voice in front of their husbands, even though this is forbidden by tradition, of being uneducated and impolite women. That's what they said about us. Tradition, you know clearly says that we should not raise our voices and that in no way should we take over the role of men. So we had to come up with strategies of our own. In my case, I didn't respond to all these allegations and just stuck to my path. I carried on with my mission and with what I believed in. I responded by doing what I did, through my acts. That's how I started my work. One day I went to see the Swiss representative in Burundi. We talked and I told him about my work. He asked me, how are you going to really help these women, John? And I said... I just listen to their stories and then I try to help them. Then he said, 
You see, there are techniques for doing this. And it is important that you learn these techniques. After that, I received training. I became a teacher for all the women who worked with me. And that's how we started on a new basis. The Maison d'Écoute goes back to these times. Back to 2001, when the perpetrators entered our neighborhood and we started to talk about the issue. We needed a space where these talks could take place. And that was the moment when we began thinking about this project. It wasn't easy. We had refugee women who came back from Tanzania and they were denounced as witches. Those who had stayed during the conflict wanted to have nothing to do with them. We needed to bring all these quarreling women together and that really was not easy. I had to find a role as a moderator. When we finally succeeded, we started to build houses for all those who needed one. At the same time, all these women needed to talk, talk, talk. For all this, we needed a building, a place that was well known, not least to avoid any allegations of being a rebel faction. I'll give you an everyday example. I was called to the nearby health center. There was a girl there. She was 16. And she had been raped by a man, a neighbor, and father of two children. She was raped on a small path that leads to her house. The man hit her twice in the face, making her fall down. Then he raped her. She went home and was so ashamed that she didn't say a word. But after three days during which she kept strangely silent and visibly sad, she started to talk. Since the perpetrator was a neighbor, this man went to see a young man he knew a hairdresser by profession, beat him up and forced him to confess that he had been the one who had raped the girl. The two men then went to find the girl, beat her up a second time and forced her to promise to say that it had been the young man, not the neighbor. You know, in our culture, you don't talk about sexual issues. 
you have to remain silent. According to tradition, you as a girl have no other choice than to accept while men are allowed to do everything. If a girl has been raped, men just say, where's the problem? She's a girl, a woman, and according to tradition, she has to bear all this, the rape, the beating, etc. The idea behind this is that women are dependent on men, so they have to remain silent. You know, if a woman betrays her husband, this automatically leads to divorce. But if a man betrays his wife, then, well, you start all kinds of talks and find an agreement between the families and, in the end, nothing happens. One day, it was 8th of March, a couple of years ago, and I remember this day very well, since I was going to a gathering to mark Women's Day. There was a rebel group nearby, and although they had already signed a peace agreement, they still had a kind of prisons in our neighborhood. People's prisons, they were called. Early that morning, they came to our house. My husband called me and I saw that our whole property was full of these militias. I told my children, you call this guy, you call this woman and tell them that your mother has just been arrested. Then I said to these militias, you know... I am a teacher by profession, everybody knows me. So if you arrest me, there could be riots in this part of town. Do you really want that? If not, let me walk on my own. Let's do as if I was going with you of my own free will. But at this moment, I really started to fear for my life. There was nothing I could do. I was in their hands now. Eventually, my children called a well-known personality and he plucked up the courage to visit me and get me out. In their eyes, I really was a disturbing element. Let's talk about what I did for children. You know, back in 1993, the country was in chaos. And in the six, seven, eight years that followed, many children were not admitted to normal schools because they had missed so many years of schooling. So what did I do?
I think I told you that I am a teacher by training. So I gather my colleagues and told them, we are going to help these children. I found a place where I brought these children to, where I offered them fast-track teaching and accelerated learning, in the hope that they would catch up and eventually get the chance to go back to normal school. We also had the problem that so many mothers were forced to go out begging on the streets in Bujumbura. So what did I do? I got help from an NGO called Sustain for Common Ground. First, I conducted a study on these women on the street. When I interviewed them, each one told me that she was on the street either because her husband had died or because members of his family had thrown her out of her house. Or... Because back home in her village, all family members had been killed and she could not go back. Those were the stories I got to hear. We found ways to buy tickets for all those who wanted to go back to their village. But for the others, we relied on my organization, Giriteka. You know, when it comes to the mobilization of women, if you have 10 women in front of you and you tell them that it's important to get mobilized, you might find two or perhaps even only one who will follow you. The others will be afraid of their husbands, of their families, of breaking the tradition, or they might say, you will get nowhere with this, you have no money, you have no power. It's not that they don't see what is happening, it's not that they don't see the need to fight back, they simply don't see any way out. And they don't believe that it is worth raising your voice in the face of men. But these one or two women who follow me, they are the ones who will go on fighting. They will challenge everything. They will become real partners.
We live in a patriarchal country. But what really makes me angry is the fact that men make a huge profit out of all this. Out of the fact that they are physically stronger, that tradition gives them all the opportunities they wish for, that boys can go to school while girls have to stay home and cook, and that they inherit everything. All this is terribly bad. So in the first place, we have to work at the political level. Men feel that they are entitled to govern, so they will not cede anything. They will not hand over a seat or position just like that. You have to snatch the power from their hands. You have to start by raising the consciousness of women, of girls, and you have to mobilize them. You must bring women into the political parties so that they can run for office. And finally, you have to tell the leaders that they cannot stay in power while their sisters are left behind. Protests of 2015 have disappeared from the streets of Bujumbura, as have the journalists who covered them. But it would be a mistake, says one former intelligence agent, to think that Burundi is now at peace. Some people think that the country is safe. And then there is the law of inheritance. Men don't want to have a vote on this law, since it might open the door to inheritance for women. It goes to parliament and then comes back. It just keeps going on back and forth, back and forth. And every time they find a new reason why we can't have a vote on this law. So my analysis is the following. One day I said in a meeting with quite important people, that our constitution clearly states that we are all equal. And if one day all women understand what that means, to be equal under the law, what are you going to do? Because that means we are also equal in the matter of inheritance. just say that the constitution is the basic law. And if we go along with this idea, I am sure there will be changes. We have made progress in many areas, but we must go on fighting. There has been some development on the issue of rape since the first case was reported in 2001. 
there are a number of organizations that work in the area and speak out. And the government has issued a specific law. And we have the declaration of Kampala that was drawn up on the occasion of an encounter of women from Rwanda, Burundi and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Based on this declaration, some things have really started to change. We have new centers for the treatment of victims. One of them has adopted a really holistic approach on the issue. For instance, we now have the center in Makamba and there is a branch in Chipitoke. So, all in all, I have some reason to be satisfied with what we have achieved. Even so, the road is still long. women across the globe a podcast about women's contribution to peace all over the world this is a production of podcastlab.ch in collaboration with a non-governmental organization peace women across the globe peace women across the globe is on spotify itunes and on the website 1000peacewomen.org please do send us your feedback